African-Americans make up about 12% of the population, um, but we account for um, about 40% of the abortions, which means like 13% of our population. And so we are um, essentially aborting our future. Welcome to the Know Why podcast. I'm your host, Liberty McCarter. For many of us, it's not enough to know what people say about life's most important questions. We also want to know why. Each week, Know Why tackles tough questions on topics ranging from spirituality to current events. While we approach these issues from a Christian perspective, we discuss diverse opinions and ultimately dive into what the research says. Are you ready to know why? Let's get started. Welcome to the Know Why podcast. We are continuing our series today on the topic of abortion. Specifically, over the last few weeks, as you know, if you've been listening, we have been talking about the issue of abortion and the pro-life movement from many different angles. We have had so many great guests that we're so thankful have joined the Know Why podcast. We've had talked about the intersection of feminism and the pro-life movement, we've talked about whether or not you can actually be an atheist and still be pro-life, talking with secular pro-life. We've talked about um, the church and the church's involvement in the pro-life movement. But one thing that we have not discussed and focused on yet is how abortion disproportionately impacts the black community. And from the pro-life side, this is a fact that is often talked about. But the why behind that impact is often overlooked, and so are the solutions. But here to educate us on that issue today is our amazing guest. I'm so happy that she's joining the Know Why podcast. We have Sherilyn Holloway, who is the president and founder of Pro Black, Pro Life. Thank you for joining us today, Sherilyn. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So Sherilyn, um, in addition to being the president of Pro Black, Pro Life, she is also an author and a thought leader. She travels around the country speaking and educating people on these topics, and she's been featured in ABC, MSNBC, Time, Washington Post, BBC, and many more. So we're really, uh, really blessed to have her join us today. And Sherilyn, let's start out by just having you share a bit more about your own background and why you started Pro Black, Pro Life. Um, yeah, so I'm going to try to keep this story as concise as possible. <laughs> um, so basically, I found myself just in a space where I no longer fit. And I had I was driving one day. I was uh, making a drive from Ohio to D.C. And I was just thinking, like, man, I just really don't feel like I belong anywhere in this movement. Um, and I just heard the Lord say uh, the things have been um, segmented for the black community. Things have been categorized that you, people are easily put in uh, boxes or uh, spaces. And so, um, and I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean? (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I was raised in Oberlin, Ohio, and we um, are very proud of being a part of the underground railroad. And um, so we learn about, you know, the Oberlin Wellington rescue and uh, the, what actually happened during uh, the times of enslavement and all these things. So, you know, a lot of stuff that people are hearing about now or people are talking about, we learned, you know, first, second, third, fourth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had that, you know, I've always had a heart for racial justice. And I was entering a space coming from the pregnancy center and, and entering a space into really what was the pro-life movement. Um, and I felt like, 
I was like a unicorn everywhere I went. People were like, how do we reach the black community? And I'm like, I don't know. Why do you think I have the answer to that? Mm. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, just really confused at only seeing, you know, five black women in a row, mm-hmm. you know, uh, at these events. And so I began to dig a little deeper and found out, you know, the, the statistics on abortion in the black community, which really kind of made me feel like, really, why aren't we talking about this more? Um, and started talking to my neighbors and, you know, my barber and random people that were listening to me. And most people just didn't know. Mm. And when they, you talked, when I talked about it in terms of uh, racism and all the other statistics and how they lined up, it was really like, people were like, yeah, the numbers are lying. It makes perfect sense. But the reality is most people don't think about abortion and the issues of abortion and the drivers of abortion as much as I do. Mm-hmm. Right. My neighbor's not having this conversation with somebody right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's but I doubt it. And so I felt like whenever I said the word pro-life to those in my community, those in my church and I attend uh, a predominantly black church, they were, they would immediately put me in the category like, Oh, well, you're a Republican. Oh, you must be, you know, alt-right conservative. Oh, you must be a Trump supporter. Like it was all these things. Mm-hmm. And those were the boxes, you know, that I had heard about before. And I'm like, I'm not sure. Some of those things are absolutely not true, but there's all the things where I'm like, I, that's not me either. Like I wouldn't put myself there either. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized that my community immediately um, categorized the word pro-life to mean anti-black mm. because wow. people that were pro-life typically uh, advocated and uh, voted for policies that were against their best interests. And so those things became synonymous. And so for me, I just, I was like, well, I don't feel that way. I feel like, you know, we should have, you know, an extension in Medicaid. I feel like we should, you know, be offering uh, more money in SNAP benefits. I feel like there should be a child tax credit all the time. I feel like all these things I, you know, I, I agree with, I feel Mm -hmm. like this should be happening. So they don't put me in that same box. And so from then I said, well, I need people to know that I'm pro-black and I'm pro-life that one does not mean the other, you know, that you're not the other. And so that's how I came up with pro black life. Wow. That, that's a great story. Thanks so much for sharing. And I hope that people listening, you know, maybe if they have felt like they don't really belong or trying to figure out, you know, they don't fit in a box and, and maybe this gives them another option. And, and that's what um, I hope we can do is, is really, kind of break down those boxes because I people really don't fit into boxes very often, but we like to try to put yeah. them in boxes. So I know you mentioned um, the statistics. So can you just, I know that there's a lot and you love research and you've got all the numbers, but just kind of an overview for anybody who might not know some of those numbers that you're talking about. So right now we are, uh, African-Americans make up about 12% of the population, um, but we account for um, about 40% of the abortions, which means like 13% of our population. And so mm-hmm. we are um, essentially aborting our future. We're aborting our future voters. We're aborting, you know, our future community members um, at an alarming rate. And there, there are numerous systemic drivers for why that is. Um, 
But the main thing I think that we need to understand is that we come from a history of not being able to be told, not being able to control when and how we have children Hmm. just from, you know, being enslaved and how black women were treated as commodities that created more commodities, you know, um, that's a true history. Mm-hmm. And so when we, when we're addressing and talking with the black community, you know, acknowledging that, you know, there's this true fear of, of not being able to make these decisions on our own, not because we're some abortion loving race, right. But because there is a history mm-hmm. of reasons why I should not trust those that don't look like me. Mm. So what are some of the other reasons? I mean, I know you gave just kind of some of the general facts about the history of this nation and how uh, the black family has been treated. But, you know, we, I've heard, you know, the whole time that I've been aware and involved in the pro-life community that there is that higher rate of abortion in the black community, but why, you know, what are the other reasons, the other drivers behind that? Um, Yeah. So I'll start with, you know, one that kind of goes to leans to the history of it, which we can get into next, but you know, it's proximity. And so if you have an abortion clinic in your neighborhood that does other things like STD testing or even um, sex education um, offers sexual protection and things like that. And that's who you're used to going to because you're free or on a sliding scale. So you only pay like, you know, a little bit, when you become sexually active or find yourself in a situation like that, this is where you're going to go, right? And so in terms of Planned Parenthood being the largest branded abortion provider in America, um, they tend to build their facilities in areas that are 60% or higher minority. And so just as if, you know, we're looking at the health statistics in the African-American communities as in terms of high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease, you know, in communities where they do not have adequate nutritional um, access where they're food deserts, you're going to see higher numbers of that because mm-hmm. they don't have access to the, to the nutritious uh, things that they need to make healthy meals. They have fast food, they have, you know, gas stations and convenience stores. It's the same thing. And so if this is across the street from me or in walking distance, this is where I'm going to go to get my health care. And so um, that is the first, you know, thing is that we have this, you know, uh, proximity. Mm-hmm. Second thing is, is that we are in, even in these communities and we're often being told uh, as, you know, black women that, you know, we have too many children out of wedlock. And so a woman who is going to, you know, find herself pregnant, single mama pregnant, you know, how is her community going to receive her as mm-hmm. being someone who is having a child out of wedlock? Uh, there are healthcare disparities. So because of the healthcare disparities and we're finding the uh, maternal mortality rate in the black community being substantially higher than those in developing countries, what does this mean for the care I'm going to receive? Mm-hmm. Uh, economics is probably the largest driver of women who are single moms, black single moms, who find themselves in a position to choose abortion make $35,000 or less. Wow. Single moms 
who are African-American who make $40,000 or more are 70% more likely to actually have their child. So we're talking about mm-hmm. a $5,000 difference a year in how someone feels in terms of what they're able to provide for their children. And so when we look at all of these factors, uh, there are specific systemic drivers that are leading women to these choices. Mm-hmm. And unless we are determined to fix those and not fix those ways in, in a downstream manner, which is what we you know, have been trying to do, or only in a downstream manner, uh, but collectively go upstream and say, okay, what policies are in place? What um, systems are in place that actually just need to be torn down and rebuilt? Mm. Um, because that's not exciting. Like that's mm-hmm. not sexy, right? Like it's sexy to, you know, lobby on the Hill or lobby in your state for great policies. Um, but it's not sexy to say, you know, what's really wrong is all of this. <laughs> and it's been 50 years um, since Roe. Mm-hmm. And in 50 years, we have not taken the time to dismantle certain systems and rebuild them when we could have. Yeah. And so when people say like, oh, that takes time and that takes money, like you're right, it should have already been done. But it wasn't because we were focused on downstream solutions, both in and out of the abortion industry. So both pro-lifers and pro-choicers are facing, looking at downstream solutions. The only solution to a woman who is having economic issues when she's pregnant is not abortion. Mm-hmm. Like, why is that the only choice she gets? It's not choice. Right. Um, And so those are some of the key systemic drivers that in my community in particular uh, that we've seen through data that um, women are making these choices. Wow. That is so eye-opening. And when you connect the dots like that, then, you know, it's really compelling just to look at that and say, you know, yeah, that. There are so many people who, like you said, they're, it's not like they're really being given a choice. And I know that other statistics about abortion just in general show that the majority of women who get abortions, they already have kids. And so, you know, they're trying to, they have a lot of things to consider, dependence to care for right. and everything like that. And then if you've got a very limited income, then... Uh, that just makes it so much harder to think through how am I going to do this? And something I wanted to note as well that I didn't mention before, um, at the time that we were recording this, you had contributed to a book that was just released. I got it in the mail yesterday. It is by Benjamin Watson, but our guest today, Sherilyn Holloway, she wrote the forward for the book. It's called The New Fight for Life. Row, race, and commit, and a pro-life commitment to justice. So I want to point out something you said in there, in the forward for the book. You say a more holistic approach goes beyond just convincing a woman to keep their baby and helps them knock down the barriers that make them consider abortion in the first place. And I think that's a lot of what you've been talking about. So what does that more holistic approach look like and some of those solutions that you're talking about? Yeah, so a more holistic approach would be to be able to say to a woman who is uh, finds herself in unplanned pregnancy, and maybe she already has like a five-year-old and she's living out of her car or she's living with her aunt and her aunt's like, if you bring another kid home, you know, you got to move out. Where is she going to go and live? Creating safe spaces for mothers to live. 
um, we have a lot of maternity homes that will, you know, allow women with their first child, you know, maybe a, a woman who has a, you know, a child up into the age two, but we don't have a lot of spaces uh, or spaces at all for women who have children who are in this situation and they really want some more holistic care. And so um, I will give a perfect example. There is a, uh, a maternity home on the South Side of Chicago uh, going up now. Pastor Charles Moody uh, is leading the charge in his church, and they offer um, childcare, preschool, uh, career development. They offer so many uh, upstream solutions to ensure that if this woman finds herself in this situation, again, she has the tools necessary to keep moving forward. So this won't even need to be a consideration. And mm-hmm. that's what providing a holistic approach is about. It's not only about meeting the need, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which we want to do, right? When someone's hungry, we want to feed them. We don't want to, you know, lecture them about, you know, saving their money and buying healthy food. <laughs> we want to give them something to eat, but we want to help them get themselves in a place where if this situation comes around again, they are more uh, sustained and are able to make, be able to make the decision to uh, parent their child without hesitation. Yeah, And um, so that also includes policy, you know, so like the child tax credit, um, parental leave, um, so many things, you know, uh, giving birth to a child is expensive. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, care after the child is born is expensive. Care for yourself, care for the child is expensive. Like, what things can we do, you know, in that way? Mm-hmm. How do we ensure that when a woman in the United States of America wakes up and she realizes she's in a, she's pregnant and it was not planned, feels supported, mm-hmm. feels that, like, I can do this. I, I know exactly where to go. I know exactly who's going to help. I know exactly, you know, who, no matter what I you say, you know, I'm homeless. I, I need a job. I need who can say, who can point me to a solution immediately because typically a crisis situation lasts nine days. Mm. And if you can intervene within that nine days with tangible solutions, you can help bring somebody out of the crisis mode and then into a more uh, cognitive thinking process. But you have to be able to meet the need for at least nine days. Right. You have to be able to hold the conversation for at least nine days. And that's where I believe that this idea that we've been given where this decision is between you and your doctor, your physician or you and you alone uh, is actually really polarizing and scary and dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because I, you know, someone can come to me and say, oh my gosh, my mom's going to kill me if she finds out I'm pregnant. Like, is she really going to kill you? Like, mm-hmm. no, but she's going to be so mad. Okay. She might be mad, but then what? Mm-hmm. You know, someone who can actually like break down that those responses and like, okay, I spoke to a young girl and her dad told her like, whatever you want to do, I'll support you. She came back and said, I want to keep my baby. And he said, no, I want you to get an abortion. Um, <laughs> you know, so like the support was kind of ripped. I didn't get to talk to her. Mm. between that conversation and her trip to the abortion clinic, Mm -hmm. you know, where I could have said, okay, well, here's some other options. You know, if you're, if your dad now is deciding that he's not going to support you, uh, let's find some other options where you live, where you can have that support um, and what that would look like. Yeah, that's so good. And 
you know, it really takes a community. And even for somebody who isn't necessarily in crisis mode, I'm, I'm a mom, I've got two kids. I don't know what I would do without my friends and family to, you know, yes. help me through not only just pregnancy and having the baby, but, you know, just being a family, you need other people. And I think you know, for a lot of pro-lifers, they would point to the fact that we've got all these pro-life pregnancy centers and, you know, we want to get women in contact with that. But something you've said in some of your other writings and interviews is that a lot of the, um, I won't say all, but, you know, a lot of the existing pregnancy centers, maybe they have a hard time reaching the black community. And you have said that we, as a pro-life movement, really need to build trust first in order to truly be helpful. And can you talk a little bit more about what that looks like? Yeah. So, for you know, my community, we're really, we're really communal. So we, you know, we really want to trust the people that we are interacting with, whether that it be a transaction. And a lot of times what ends up happening is there may be some transactional experiences, you know, at the pregnancy center where they're, you know, receiving um, you know, material support or, a, you know, uh, ultrasound or even taking classes so that they can use, you know, their baby bucks. Um, it's not necessarily feeling like a family, hmm. you know. And so one of the things that I've been training on, you know, in partnership with another organization is how to create a community space where where those who don't look like you or the community that you want to reach that you're not reaching actually feels like they're coming into like their cousin's house or their aunt's house when they come to visit you, you know, that Mm -hmm. is more community because then you're going to hear the stories. Then you're going to hear the real needs. Then you're going to hear, you know, about, you know, things down the road that they, you know, that they have concerns about and everything is not, you know, transactional. And I think that's really important, you know, to, to focus on, you know, at Pro Black Pro Life, that is our core focus. Our core focus is, teaching our um, community leaders, our black churches, the, uh, those who run organizations that are uh, black community facing, teaching them what they need to know to actually formulate a community uh, with the resources that are um, there, right? It doesn't mean that I have to now provide all these resources, right? It just means that I need to know who does and I need to have a close enough relationship with them where I can pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, I'm sending you know, Loretta down to you. This is what she needs. She's only got 30 minutes before she's got to pick up her kids from, from school, you know, all of that. Um, that's what, that's what we're trying to build. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. I love that idea of building, creating a community space because that's where you really do learn more about people and what they need. And so I want to come back to that in a second and um, maybe you can give us just some quick tips for anyone listening, how they can get active in helping the people in their local communities. Um, But first, something that I wanted to go back to, uh, you mentioned Planned Parenthood earlier and they are the largest and most recognizable abortion provider in the nation. And so something else that you hear if you're in pro-life circles or or maybe even outside of pro-life circles, you've heard that... um, the history of Planned Parenthood is that it has racist and eugenicist roots. Can you tell us whether that's true and what we need to know about the history of abortion and Planned Parenthood? 
Yeah, so yes, it's true. <laughs> a quick Google search will show you that it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, is that the idea of ab- abortion itself was not um, was not the beginning, right? So Margaret Sanger, who is the mother of Planned Parenthood, actually, uh, her selling thing was birth control. Mm. Um, and she realized that with birth control being legal, that white uh, suburban women were going to be the ones who are more than likely going to take it because they had aspirations. And so then how do we level the playing field, specifically when we're getting ready to have um, overwhelming number of blacks that were enslaved now be free? How, what are we going to do? Mm. And I think even like Virginia, North Carolina, and I believe another state, the number of enslaved outnumbered those who weren't mm-hmm. already. Mm-hmm. And so her idea was, is that this is not a bloodline that we want to continue. Now, the idea of eugenics was around way before this, mm-hmm. uh, way before this. Mm-hmm. And it actually didn't have anything to do with black people because the idea of mixing with black people was just never on the table. Um, and so the idea of it was not, she didn't bring the idea of eugenics. She just brought the idea of, hey, there's this, that we could use birth control to our advantage if we can get black pastors and black leaders to endorse it. Hmm. She recognized that if you want to change something in the black community, that you need to get those within the black community to do it. Mm-hmm. And so she was going to these tent revivals. And she would, um, you know, pass out material and talk, you know, essentially talk to the pastors and say, hey, you know, if your members are having less children, it's less strain on you because when something happens or there's an issue, the church itself does not have to help. Um, And so when we think about people like W.E.B. Du Bois, who, you know, people are like, she was friends with him. Well, he was an elitist. W.E.B. Du Bois believed that education was the key to getting uh, the black community out of poverty, but those that were in poverty shouldn't reproduce. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, you have to know the full history and the full story of how we got here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so right now we're in a place where we are convincing ourselves that, yes, we recognize that. Planned Parenthood was uh, founded by a eugenicist, but that's not who we are now. Mm-hmm. Right now, we just want to help women, and we feel like women should have this choice. It doesn't really work like that. If I go outside in my yard and I plant plant apple seeds, I'm going to get an apple tree, and mm-hmm. the fruit that's going to come off of that is going to be apples. Mm-hmm. I can't go out and plant apple seeds. And then when the fruit starts to grow, I start telling everybody I got peaches. Mm. And that's essentially what they're doing. They're convincing everyone through branding and through marketing and through messaging that we no longer have apples. We have peaches. We're Mm. not the same as back then. We're here to help you. And in no other industry, healthcare, legal system, prison system, uh, no other industry, educational system, do we as a black community believe that. Mm -hmm. 
we collectively believe that these there are systems that were put in place, there were seeds that were planted, and they are operating the way they're, they were supposed to. And unless we tear down those systems and rebuild them, they're going to continue to operate the way they were supposed to. And for some strange reason, we believe in that the abortion industry is different. Mm. And I think it's because of self self-sufficiency, uh, right? Yes, but this thing can actually make a problem go away from me. And so even though we don't benefit from a, a legal system that doesn't work for us, we don't benefit from a healthcare educational system that doesn't work for us, we believe that we benefit from this industry because it could take a big problem and make it not a problem for anywhere from six to $800. And even without taking part of that ourselves personally, we may be close to someone, you know, a sister, a best friend, a cousin, a mom um, that has made that choice and speaking out against it really feels like we're speaking out against them. And so we are, we become hyper-protective of the issue because we don't want our loved ones to be hurt you know, by the rhetoric or by the idea that this is, this is something that is wrong that we actually participated in um, that is not beneficial to, our, to the Black community and in terms are buying into uh, the systemic racial issues that we are also simultaneously talking about all the time. Mm. Yeah, that is really insightful. And, you know, just statistically, we all know somebody who has had an abortion. So I think that's also just a good reminder to, you know, regardless of our personal beliefs on this issue, you know, when we're with, you're listening, whether you're pro-life, pro-choice, like this is an important conversation, but it's one, you know, to be had carefully and lovingly and without judgment because we, you know, we all know somebody who has been through this and had various factors going into why this was something that she felt like she had to do. And so, Sherilyn, before we let you go, because we're almost out of time, I did want to jump back to some of those ways that you were talking about the other factors, that holistic approach that can help women, specifically Black women and the Black families, have the resources that they need to be able to make the choice for life and not feel like that they are cornered into this choice of abortion. And so if there's somebody that is just, you know, in their local community or they want to say, how can I help? What is a practical tip or a few practical things that they could do to start making a difference in this area and building the kind of supportive structures that we need? I would say know what's in your community. Mm. Know what's available Know what your state laws are. So in the state of Ohio, you get uh, medical assistance when you're pregnant. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter. None of those things matter. Once you find out you're pregnant, you immediately qualify. A lot of people don't know that. Mm. So they'll go into their sixth month of pregnancy with not receiving any medical care because they didn't have insurance. Um, because had you asked them before and they're like, I apply, you know, I may have applied for, you know, insurance the day before I got pregnant and I was denied. So they just assume that based on their income, they don't qualify. Know your state's laws. 
So there are multiple types of people out there, right? There are people that that are community community you know based, and they mm-hmm. like to be involved in the community. If that's you, you know, start going to the events in your community where people are tabling, so that you understand what's all available. And ask very specific questions. Do you have any programs for single moms? Do you have any programs for mom pregnant moms? Uh, single or not, do you have, you know, are there, is there transportation issues in your area? Like what's the transportation situation? Mm -hmm. Um, Know all these things. So you can, number one, share the information, but number two, know where the gaps are. Mm -hmm. And so then you can start advocating for where the gaps are um, and determine from that based on your own gifts and talents, how you want to uh, interject yourself. So for example, my mother is, a, is totally service oriented. If you need a ride to the doctor, she's the one to call. Mm-hmm. Like she will give you a ride to the doctor, yeah. right? But if you want someone to speak out on this issue at a public event, do not call her. Mm-hmm. She's not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Like she's just not. <laughs> um, but maybe that is you. Maybe, you know, you like to speak in public on issues and maybe you're speaking in public on other issues. Educate yourself on the issues uh, that interests you in this area? What Are there anything that I said that you're like, I want to dig deeper into that. I want to find out what those numbers are in my community so that I can speak about those in confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is there are people that like to legislate, right? There are people that lo- will lobby, you know, their legislators for all types of things. If that is you, know who is on your side and who's not. Know who is standing on the fence. This was really important for me as some after, you know, the Dobbs decision, mm-hmm. because I kind of was thrusted into like this, these policy conversations that I had zero interest in being in before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I had zero interest in being in any part of the legalities of abortion. I just wanted to help women. Um, and now being on this side of things, um, I, I have to, you know, understand what those are in order to, to continue to advocate and put my name on things that I believe in. And so if that's you, you know, understand what those laws are, you know, specifically in your state. What is the abortion law right now in your state? Be clear about it, because some people think it's one thing and there may be an appeal process and abortion is completely legal in your state right now mm-hmm. because it's going through an appeal process. Mm. You just never you don't know if you're not right. paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are things and figure out who to talk to, who's on the fence that you may you could have conversations with to, you know, just say, you know, I'm not asking you to make abortion legal or illegal, but I am asking you to consider what our women, what we can do for our women who want to parent or feel like they don't have the choice to, what are some things that we can do to help them? Um, so you're not necessarily coming at them from a, like make this legal or illegal, but instead saying, Hey, there are women out here. There are 44% of women who are making a choice for abortion. Say they're doing it because they have no choice. How do we help them, mm-hmm. you know, actually, you know, be able to parent in, in a community, in a um, community sense that they feel good about and that you could feel good about. Yeah. Um, and the other one is messaging, right? And mm-hmm. so if you're someone who likes the communication, right? So you're, you're the people we call like the keyboard warriors who are on social media saying all types of crazy stuff, like mm-hmm. <laughs> um, learn how to use that effectively. Learn how to use the persuasive tone effectively in your communication. Learn how to just to not be emotional and to stick to the facts. Learn, you know, all the people that you mentioned in, you know, in the intro, all those organizations, Secular Pro-Life, New Wave Feminists, they all have 
amazing social media and information to share Mm -hmm. that, you know, you can talk about and they're all very accessible to questions that you may have. Like, you know, I I shared this and someone came and asked me this and I didn't really know what to say without sounding like a jerk. Right. Like Mm -hmm. I'm snarky. So you (laughs) tend to not hear me respond on social media because I know this about myself. Mm -hmm. Right. I know if, if I'm putting something on social media, it's I'm giving you numbers. I'm giving you research there's nothing for us to argue about. Right. Right. Like how, how do you argue the numbers? Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to argue with you because I'm just going to be snarky about it because I feel like you're being ridiculous by not paying attention to the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't respond. That's not my, that's not my gifting, but if that is you, you can use it in a positive and informative way. If communication is your gift. I love that so much. And just, how you, you know, highlight, we all have different parts to play. And so know yourself, know your gifts and your talents and what you can contribute. One person doesn't have to do everything, but if we come together as a community, then we can get a lot of things done if we're all doing our part. So that's great advice. Learn about this issue in your local community, get familiar with what the needs are. But Sherilyn, if there was just one resource, be it a book or something else that you would want to point people to for just more general education on what we've been talking about today, what would that be? Definitely the new site for life. <laughs> Hands down. I've been waiting. Got for it this here. <laughs> um, so Benjamin Watson's the new site for life um, is just a phenomenal read. It's an, it's a, an easy read. It's easy to understand. And I, it just hits every point in understanding the history, but how we can take more of a um, nuanced view of the issue and actually what to do about it. Yeah, I can't wait to, I like I said, I just got it in the mail. Um, I can't wait to finish reading it. And you wrote the forward for it. So I just read that part before I talked today and it was already so good. I'm like, oh my goodness. And, you know, just four pages, like, Wow. Um, And so I can't imagine the rest of the book. I imagine it's going to be great as well. So um, you can also go to ProBlackProLife.com to learn more about Sherilyn's work and resources there. Is there anything else that you'd like to add or end with today, Sherilyn, before I let you go? Um, No, I think I would just like to, you know, remind everyone that not to put people in boxes, not to immediately put your defenses up, you know, Pro-black does not mean anti-white. Pro-life does not mean anti-black. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> understand that there are different organizations and people who are running this race. And even though we're not in the exact same lane, we have a common goal that we are running to. Um, and so just be open-minded, be, be humble, and uh, receive things as they come. Such great advice and what a great episode and and talk today, Sherilyn. Thank you so much for joining the Know Why podcast. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. Stay tuned because we'll have more episodes coming out soon.